You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh that at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is home, is home, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we just, uh, we come to you this morning and just thank you for your word that you've given to us, Father, the truth um, of this word. And Father, we pray that you be with us this morning. Father, I pray that you open our hearts to hear from you this morning, Lord. Um, Be with Pastor Lyle as he brings the message, Father. Lord, give him boldness and um, Father, you just bless his words as he, uh, as he speaks the truth that you've laid on his heart this morning. And Lord, prepare our hearts to receive it now. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. David may have not needed to introduce himself. I'm sure he's probably met most of you in this room. Amen. Oh, man, love that guy. He is such a beautiful presence and helps welcome to a ton of people into our church and make them feel like they belong before they even sit in this room. So thank you, David, for the way you care for our people so well. Uh, So today, uh, in spite of what you might assume from the text that we're reading, all right, uh, we are actually spending a couple weeks in there. We're going to talk about marriage uh, next week. Today, I want to talk about singleness from that passage of Scripture. And so... um, Some of you may be sitting here and going, why in the world we're talking about singleness? This has nothing to do with my life. And just like I say to my wonderful children, everything is not always about you. Amen. (laughs) And I will say that today in a kind way to you as your pastor. Uh, I got one goal today. I want to talk a little bit about how singleness is a good gift from God. That's it. I'm not trying to uh, unpack this in any exhaustive way. Um, I think you can do several sermons, and I think there's probably going to be more questions, maybe not more, but maybe some more questions at the end of this that I may not get to to answer. And I would love to have more conversation with you. It doesn't have to be with me. It can be with other of our leaders here about this issue if this raises more questions that you feel like I didn't do a good job or an adequate job of answering these. My prayer is that this time will be helpful for all of us and that hopefully um, we will see singleness in a different light than what we may have come in thinking about singleness. 
So I think it's always good for us when we dive into something like this to make sure we define our terms so we know that we're all on the same page. This is how I'm defining singleness for us. When I say singleness, I'm talking about this, and this seems to be what the Bible teaches holistically. To be single means being both unmarried. And so, um, so sometimes when we think about singleness, we only think of one lane, those people that are young adults looking to be married. Well, I'm looking at it more broader than that. So singleness for me would include those that, that are in that category, but not only that category. Teenagers are single, right? Um, Okay, amen there, I think, a little bit. Some teenagers are, yeah, teenagers single. Uh, you've got people that are widowed, they're single. You've got people that are divorced that are single. You've got people that are uh, suffering from same-sex attraction that are single. So there's, there's a wide gamut here when we talk about those who are single. I'm not just talking about one lane that most of us probably default in our thinking. So to be single means being both unmarried and committed as long as you reign unmarried to sexual abstinence. And I'm not dealing within this sermon about the issue of sexual abstinence. I do believe that it's taught in the Bible that sex has been defined by God to be enjoyed and experienced within the confines of marriage. And Jesus comes along and underlines that teaching also. And so all I want to say to that is this, is that we as a church convictionally believe that God is the one who defines where we find life where we find flourishing. And if this is where he has defined sex to be experienced, then we also believe that this is the place where you find flourishment and enjoyment, all right? So this sermon is not about that, but I want us to understand that's what I mean when we talk about singleness. Those who are committed to both being unmarried and sexual abstinence. So what needs to happen, I would say for most of us in the church, is that we need to kind of have an overall shift in our understanding. And that shift is, you know, kind of um, uh, narrowed down to say this. Yes, marriage, as we see from this text, and we'll get to that next week, is a good gift from God. And, and singleness is also a good gift from God. For most of us, probably view singleness as purgatory. <laughs> Meaning, it's a place where we wait till real life begins. And whether you intentionally believe that, you may have unintentionally given that out by the way you react to people that are single and the way your presence is experienced from them. And I wanna say, say up front, singleness is not purgatory. <laughs> and I'll get there and tell you why I believe that. As one writer, Sam Albury, who wrote a really good book called Seven Myths About Singleness, says this, even the way we describe singleness reflects this idea that singleness is purgatory. It is almost always defined in the negative as the absence of something. It's the state of not being married. It's the absence of a significant other. This defining by negation reinforces the idea that there is, there is nothing intrinsically good about singleness. It is merely the situation of lacking what is intrinsically good in marriage. And so I don't believe this is what the Bible teaches about singleness. It is not primarily the problem that needs to be fixed. And I think you also see it here in Genesis 2. Look what he says here in verse 18. This is the only time when God says something's not good. The only time in these two chapters. So obviously, the author's wanting us to pay attention to what's going on here. Look what he says here 
and verse 18. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Like I said, this is the first time where God says something is not good and God is the one who said this. And notice, and we'll get to more of this a little bit next week, Adam does not respond back to God and say, oh no, God, what do you mean alone? I got you, you're enough. That is not what Adam says. God sees something missing, a gap in his creation that must be filled. And it seems like from what we read in verse 19, that he's trying to help Adam feel this. So this is what we see here starting in verse 19. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And what of the man called a living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So what we see here in this little few verses here is that Adam's solitude, his aloneness, even with God as his companion is a defect. And God in his goodness acts to remedy this lack. So note, God is the one that sees this. God is the one that names this. God is the one who acts and God is the one who meets his need. And therefore God has designed us so that he would meet some of our relational needs through other people. That's a whole nother conversation in and of itself. And I'll come back to that next week and kind of unpack that a little bit more. But what we see within this narrative is that God specifically does meet this need of Adam by creating Eve and therefore instituting this thing called marriage. So yes, this passage is directly speaking about marriage. However, marriage is not the only way to address man's solitude and aloneness. I'll say that again. Marriage is not the only way to address man's solitude and aloneness. What is not good in this passage? This is not a trick question. It's right there. What is not good there? Say it out loud. Man being alone. That is what is not good. Not singleness. However, right? Sometimes we intentionally or unintentionally will treat that that is the problem. That singleness is what God is talking about here. And by us thinking that way, sometimes what we do, whether we intentionally do this or not, we communicate to those who are not married that they're incomplete until they find a spouse. Or as our culture will say that until you find your soulmate, then therefore you are incomplete. So the problem in this text is not singleness, but that man is alone. But unfortunately, what we do as a Christian community, whether we realize this or not, we have a tendency to think that plan B of the Christian life is singleness. Plan A of the Christian life is for man to find woman and they be married. If you can't do that, then you can step down to the lower plan B of the Christian life. Paige Brown, and I know, maybe this is a little heavy on you. I'm just trying to kind of extract a little of assumptions and presuppositions that we have towards singleness. 
and it's really important for us to hear this, all right? So just kind of, it's kind of heavy. I'll lighten it up a little bit here in a minute, but I am trying to expose some ways we think about this that is really harmful to single people. Paige Brown, in her classic little article called Singled Out by God for Good, addresses uh, how the church in general tries to explain singleness. This is what they will say. I'll give you four statements here. One of them is, as soon as you are satisfied with God alone, he will bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by your contentment. Another statement, you're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickly whims and needs a broader parameters in which to work. Another one, as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work of which marriage must be no part. Last statement she talks about here is before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. Man, that's so helpful, right? <laughs> as though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the more fully sanctified. Here's what I'm trying to say underneath all these statements is this premise that single life is a state of deprivation for people who are not fully formed enough for marriage. That's really problematic. One well-known pastor, and I do not have his picture up here because I do not want you to know who this is, but if I told you who his name is, every most of us in this room would know who this pastor is, said this, and I quote, let me tell you the most devastating attack on marriage today is coming from singleness. Singleness is an assault on marriage. Marriage is the grace of life. As a pastor, I tell my people, look, if it keeps going this way, I'm going to line all the girls on one side and all the guys on the other, and we're going to just match you up and have a huge wedding. This escalating self-preoccupation, personal ambition, personal development that creates a kind of terminal singleness is devastating, obviously, the family. I just see singleness as a disaster. I want to be really gracious and try to give the benefit of the doubt here. And like I said, if you would read this without the context of the sermon I'm preaching, you may read this and go, yeah, there's something wrong here. Yeah. There's ways that we would probably amen this depending on the context that we're in. But this is really troubling because it's making a massive assumption that the reason why people are single is because they're selfish. Maybe that's a little bit true, but I've found a lot of married people that are also stinking selfish, amen? Amen. Not everyone who is single is purely single for selfish reasons, and singleness is not a disaster. So, where do you 
also get that it's not a disaster. You're the little passage we looked at today in 2, you know, 18 through 25, we see that the problem of man is aloneness, solitude. It's, and the, and the, 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 the way you remedy that is not just through marriage. It's not just through marriage, right? So they're not treating the problem of singleness here. There's other ways that God remedies aloneness of man through relationships and friendships, all right? We can get into that later. But we also see as we travel up to the New Testament how actually the writers of the New Testament affirm and speak of the goodness of singleness. And I'll just give you three. That's it, just three. The first one is Jesus. <laughs> Can I have an amen, right? Jesus. First of all, he was single. And I don't think he's plan B of what it means to be human, right? I'm not a scholar, but I'm just making an assumption here. He's not subhuman. <laughs> He's not a disaster, amen? amen? But look what he says in Matthew chapter 11. It's interesting. I'm not going to read all this, but I'm just going to read verses 11 through 12. But this is in the context where Jesus is talking about divorce and marriage. And, and what he's speaking here as far as about marriage and divorce and the, the high level of commitment that is to be made within the context of marriage. After the disciples heard this, this is what their conclusion was. Well, that's maybe it's not better for me to get married. Like, I don't know if I want to marry. Like, that's, that's like next level what you're saying here, Jesus. So maybe it's just better for me to remain single and never marry. And look what he says here in verse 11. He responded, not everyone can accept the same, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. So in case you don't know what a eunuch is, a eunuch refers not just to a castrated male, but to any person who chooses not to offer their body sexually to another. Some are celibate, where they refuse to marriage and sexual intimacy. Some are celibate due to physical disabilities, others to castration. And then what is crazy here is that Jesus opens up a brand new category that no one would have ever thought of. This new category is quite shocking within this culture because being married was an enormous pressure for a Jewish person at this time. But here in verse 12, he offers a brand new category that some will renounce marriage and remain single and not sexually active for the rest of their life for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that's not a curse. It's a gift. He says it at the very end of it. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. It's a gift that God gives for some, maybe for a season, for others, maybe for a life. Let us state the obvious here. Jesus did this. Jesus made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He was single and he never, ever had sex. And Jesus is the most complete and fully human being that ever lived. As one author says, so his not being married is not incidental. It shows us that one of these things, marriage, none of these things, I'm sorry. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience is intrinsic to being a full human being. 
Jesus is uplifting and putting kind of a spotlight on singleness and calling it good and a gift. Not a disaster. Second one, Paul. Paul was single. First Corinthians chapter seven, massive chapter about marriage and singleness that I am not fully unpacking in any stretch of the imagination, right? But it's a pastor scripture that you can go to this week and read through and process. There's a lot in there that is sometimes quite confusing, but I'm just trying to highlight the most obvious, all right? And starting in verse seven, this is what Paul says. I wish that all were as myself. I, I'm real butchering it here. I wish that all were as I myself am. But that, that is a horrible sentence, amen, right? So you can correct me in heaven, Paul, but goodness, we can write that a little bit easier, right? I wish that all were as I myself am. Yes, Yoda, sounds great. But each has his own gift. Look how he's saying that. Look what he says, their gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse eight, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good. It is good for them to remain single as I am. When Paul says the word gift here, referring to singleness, he's not meaning some superhuman power. That's what we think. It's not talking about some superhuman power where it's not hard to be single, that the struggle is gone. Paul, anytime that he uses the word gift, he means an ability that God gives to someone to help build others up. He's not speaking of some kind elusive, stress-free life, amen? The giftedness of being single for Paul is it gave him the freedom to concentrate on ministry in ways a married person cannot you have a, a way of focusing single-mindedly on the kingdom in the present here and now. It does not mean like we sometimes think that because you're single, then therefore you have more time in order to devote yourself to kingdom work. It's just a false assumption. It's similar, and this is a, probably a little bit of a breakdown, all right? But similar to what if you, um, uh, if you are married and you've uh, maybe, maybe uh, were able to kind of have your, your one of you to stay home and raise your children um, until they got into grade school. And then once they got into grade school, uh, they got this little space that you have with no kids in, in, the, in the house. And sometimes one of the spouses can make the assumption, whoever's staying home, that all of a sudden they have all this free time. Like, what are you doing with your free time? And we come in with this expectation after working a long day. Well, you had like seven hours of free time. What'd you? No, like there's all kinds of things you got to do at home. And it just not, it's not free time. It's not like a, now I've got so much more space here. It's the same way that sometimes we can think about singles, that they have this, this allotted more time to where they can devote to, to kingdom work. That's just a, a terrible assumption. However, I would say that there's flexibility. There is. And there is in a way where our attention and, and our affections can be undivided. So what Paul is teaching, if you go home and read the whole of chapter seven, is very countercultural in this time. Very countercultural. For a Jewish person, singleness was to be avoided at all costs. But what he's teaching here is that singleness 
is advantageous for many. And in fact, he's encouraging Christians to remain in that state so that they have an undivided affection and attention could be given to Jesus and this kingdom. It's not a disaster. It's not like second tier. You're not subhuman. You're not plan B. It's good. It's a gift. Third place I see this in the New Testament, and this is the one that was probably pretty convicting and challenging to me and one that I've honestly never thought of. And it's this idea of what happens in the resurrection, the new heavens, the new earth. In Matthew chapter 22, there's an interesting little conversation that goes on between uh, the special sect of religious leaders called the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. And so obviously, if you know the story of the gospels, the religious leaders and Jesus don't get along real well. It's more of the religious issues. Jesus tries to woo them, but they won't listen to him, all right? Um, and so they want to trap Jesus and slick come to him with this like, Big old, like, you know, we, we got it. Like, we got a scenario that we're going to finally get Jesus. And so, hey, Jesus, you know, there's a, there's a husband and wife. They've been married. The husband dies, and the wife is widowed. And in Jewish law, there's a responsibility for the next person in, in line to go and marry the, the wife that's been widowed so they can have their children. Well, guess what? That husband died, and then it happens again, and you go seven times, you know, boom, 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 boom. And then they have this little trick question. Which husband will be the husband of the wife in the resurrection, Jesus? Come on. I just love Jesus. Amen. Verse 29. I just wish I could do this, but that's okay. Jesus did it really well. This is what he says to him. Jesus answered them, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Drop the mic, right? You don't need to say much more. Like, oh man, you're so awesome. But look what he says in verse 30, which is kind of a little, not troubling. Um, I don't know, maybe it, it bothers me a little bit, if I can just be honest. Because I do love Kathy deeply and dearly, and I enjoy her deeply. But what he says, for in the resurrection, they're neither marry nor are given in marriage, but all are like angels in heaven. So Jesus says here, there will be no marrying in the resurrection. That's where they're getting it wrong. Which for some of us, right, who are married, it can feel a little bothersome and it can raise a ton of questions. And I can't answer all those questions because that's not the purpose of the sermon. I will say this, that whatever we experience in this life as good is just a taste of what is coming. I don't know how, but I am trusting God that it's going to be more beautiful and wonderful than what I can ever imagine. The reason why Jesus says this, because it is true, there will be no marrying and giving in marriage and the new heavens and the new earth. Why is that? Because listen, because marriage, as it is practiced now, will have served its purpose. And I'll get into this more next week. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. So when we enter the fullness of our relationship with him, when the church is finally presented to him as his perfect bride, the institution of marriage will have served its purpose. We have the reality. So then therefore we no longer need the picture. 
And, and this is where I missed it. And in a different way, singleness points to this same reality. Like Jesus, singles can live in a way that anticipates what is to come. Singleness now is a way of saying that this future reality is so certain and so good that I can embrace it right now. As one author says, Tim Tennant, in his book, The Beauty of Singleness and Friendship, he says this, it is a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate, that in Christ we possess what is. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows its sufficiency. That is convicting. Singleness shows the gospel, Jesus' sufficiency. Every believer in some way mirrors these future realities. Most are called to mirror the age to come through marriage, serving as icons of the relationship between Christ and his church. Others mirror the age to come by living celibate, singular, devoted to Christ as members of the church of Jesus Christ. If you are called to singleness, know that it is not intended to be a state of solitude and individual isolation. Rather, God's desire is to be a means of deep communion with him, of which marriage only points to as a shadow of what that which is to come. Those with the gift of celibacy and singleness and body and even fuller realization of the inbreaking kingdom that is then than is portrayed in the icon of marriage. This is why our church needs singles here. As Sam Albrey says, that we need them here to remind us that the joy and fulfillment of marriage in this life is partial and can only be temporal. The presence of singles who find their meaning and satisfaction in Jesus, as imperfect as that may be, is a visible, physical testimony to the fact that the end of all our longings comes in Jesus. So singleness is not subhuman, it's not plan B, and it's by far not a disaster, amen? It is a good gift that God gives us and we need and want singleness, singles to be a part of our community. They matter to us because they matter to God. So to close out here, maybe this is the question you're asking. Why in the world, Lau, are you hitting on this issue of the goodness of singleness, right? I know some of you are going like, man, you've really hammered that home. Is there not an angle on you to deal with the whole issue of relationships and loneliness and alone? That is a whole nother talk in and of itself, right? I do think there's a way that God provides for us relationships, multiple relationships in seasons like this and can feel very alone and, and by yourself. But that's not the primary purpose of what I wanted to talk about. The reason why I spent so much time on this good aspect of singleness is because I do think there's a lot of assumption and presuppositions that we as church people have about it. And I want to expose that and say, hey, this is not where we are. And let's kind of reframe our thinking so when we encounter those who are single, they don't feel from us as if they are subhuman 
or something's wrong with them. Two other reasons. One is there are some weird unwritten rules within our community that I want to blow up. And we've sort of blown them up, whether you've realized it or not, without telling you, right? One of those unwritten rules was that to lead a community group, you had to be married. What does that communicate to a single person? Another unwritten rule here, which was kind of weird, didn't realize this was here, but it was. Not something I said, but it just happened that only married people can serve communion. Back in the day when we used to do the rip and dip method, right? <laughs> I know it's a very hard way to say it, but that's what it was. It's just say what it is, you know. I always knew when there was a visitor here because they'd always try to grab that cup and drink it. It's like, saw some wrestling every once in a while during communion. But I, I don't know where that came from. That's nowhere in the Bible. And once again, we're communicating to singles. Ah, you kind of matter, but you really don't matter because you're not married yet. Just one reason why. The second reason is we, we do have singles in our community, in our church community. I thank God for them. They tolerate all my marriage jokes and marriage illustrations and parenting stuff. Thank you for tolerating that and humoring me with your laughter. And I'm sorry for the way sometimes I neglect what's going on in your life by the way I use illustrations. And not only do we have singles in our church community, we have singles in our community. We have an apartment complex that's being built right next door to us. And not everyone that's in the compartment is single, but usually, for the most part, most tenants are. And I love what Tim Keller said, and this has, he uses this language kind of talking about like, uh, speaking to those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus and, and like, how can you bring them into your church? And he uses language like, if you want your neighbor to show up at your church, then why don't you preach like your neighbor is already there? Then maybe your neighbor will show up. And in a similar way, if we want to minister to singles, not only is it about what I say from here, it's also about how they experience you what they feel when they interact with you. See, our default sometimes when it comes to this idea of what are we going to do with singles is that we have a tendency to think, what program are we going to put together? I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have some ministry that's dedicated. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying churches that do that are wrong. I just feel like what I'm after, instead of first thinking about programming, let's think about us and how they experience us. And recognize that when a single person walks in this door, there's already a barrier. Because 90% of the people they encounter are what? Married. So I don't think the goal is, first of all, let's figure out a program. Let's figure out a singles ministry. No. Let's figure out how I can be present with them in such a way to where they experience the matterness they have with God.
So that can mean making space around your kitchen table for your single friends. They eat hundreds of meals alone. Invite them over. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to say, oh, they're probably not going to come over. They might feel like a third will, a fifth will, or an eighth will, or a ninth will, whatever you want to put there. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, they'll feel so weird at a bunch of couples here. What? Look, it's like, if that's what we say all the time, then guess what? They never get invited to anything. Are you hearing me? They actually enjoy just being a part of the family, being there, being present. Share meals with them. It made me look like figuring out ways that you help bear their burdens. One single person said this, most singles experience life as at the end of the day, you are bearing everything on your own. Your physical load of everyday life, car problems, difficulty financially, sick, get the vaccine, not get the vaccine. Should I wear a mask in this situation? Should I not wear a mask? In some ways, they are carrying all of that by themselves. Whereas a married couple, they have kind of this one another's. Even if your marriage is a train wreck, you still kind of know you got someone else to kind of bounce some of these thoughts across. Single people, it's kind of on them. And it can feel really lonely. And the Lord, help us to figure out ways we can help bear their burdens. That's what we're called to. Another way is that we can come and learn how to listen, weep, empathize, be a safe place of love through our presence and through our patience. And I emphasize listen and weep. My good friend, Jamal Williams, says, don't Bible juke them. <laughs> he can say it a whole lot better than I can. <laughs> and one of the ways that I think sometimes we Bible juke people, especially singles, is we'll use language like, isn't Jesus enough for you? Personally, I didn't like that phrase. I don't find it very helpful, not just for single people, but for anyone. I mean, I want him to be enough. But when my daughter died, no one came to me when I was weeping over her death and I still weep about it and say, hey, Lau, isn't Jesus enough for you? And I think the reason why we don't say that is we think that that kind of pain is intolerable and Jesus doesn't like it. Well, I would tell you singleness is a pain that Jesus doesn't like either. When we say things like, isn't Jesus enough? It just is hurtful. Maybe you have good intentions, but it's still really hurtful. Those are just a few ways I think we as married people can hopefully embody a presence that we 
need singles in our community, and they matter. They matter. I'll close with this real quick. If you're single here, I just want to leave you with a few things, and I pray that this is an encouragement for you. Number one, you're not alone. You're not. We don't want you to feel like you're alone. Know this, that the the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is beside you always. He is for you. He is not against you. And you're in this new community called the church. We are imperfect people. Oh my gosh, are we not? Striving, striving together to live and follow Jesus. You are not alone. And if you feel that way, then please express and let us hear it. Secondly, I hope this is encouragement for you also is that Jesus sees you. Maybe you feel unseen. And sadly, sometimes the church has done a pretty bad job of helping you feel like you are seen by Jesus. But we want to do better. And I know that Jesus does see you. And lastly, not only does Jesus hear you, see you, I mean, he hears your cry and he empathizes not condemns your longings and your disappointments, even when you're disappointed with God. It is safe to say that, people. That's why we have lament. That's why we have a book called Lamentations. It's crying out to God about our disappointments, including, at times, our disappointment with God. Where else are you going to do to cry that out, right? Where else are you going to go, right? Like, if I got to keep that down, does God want me to keep that down? Shove that down. That's not being a Christian. Shove it down. Is that a healthy human being? No, God's inviting us to come to him, even with all of our disappointments, even with him. And for those who are single, who long to be married and have prayed for this for years, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, this is at play. And I just want to encourage you that Jesus is not going like this. It's an open embrace. You're not alone. He sees you and he hears you. Let's pray. So let's just take a moment. I'd love just for us to be still, quiet, and just sense maybe how the Spirit is speaking to you. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.